Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is on the air. Your host, Nathan Wilson, with Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, is excited about providing information every gardener and non-gardener, homeowner, and apartment dweller can use. From vegetables to containers and compost to pruning shears, Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is here for you. Now here's Nathan. Well, good morning, gang, and welcome to a another day here in the new Southern Garden. Of course, last week we talked about uh, your questions, and we gave you our answers. Now, remember that if you find something in your landscape that is questionable, that you're not sure what's going on, well, we try every... Uh, the last episode of every month, the last show of the month on a Saturday, to answer that question you've got. So after today's show, you've really only got a couple more Saturdays until we have another Q&A week. So if you'd like to send us a question that you just haven't found a good resolution for, then feel free to do so. Of course, you can do so at NewSouthernGarden.com, and you can check us out on Facebook and Instagram where you can send pictures and videos if your question needs that. But otherwise, we had some good questions last week. We talked some more about perennials. People are getting into the perennial spirit. They are planting perennials in their landscape, wanting to plant them in containers, and we talked a lot about that. And, of course, we had some tomato issues, and... Uh, since we talked about uh, the tomato issue last week, I thought we would talk about other issues that you may have this summer. I will say that this summer we had, or not not this summer, but the spring, we had some really early wet days. We had cooler days, and that brought on a lot of issues. We saw copious amounts of powdery mildew, in particular. We've seen issues with roses. Because we had some cold weather, we saw a lot of cold damage. We had a, if you may remember, think back a few weeks, but before Easter, we had a cold snap, a true uh, right at freezing temperature and so many things because we had such a good weather before that. We had such good weather before Easter that plants were starting to grow. Things that normally don't bloom so early, well, they they were blooming earlier. But then we had plants leafing out, opening their buds, and boom, right around um, sometime before Good Friday. Yeah, it was a Palm Sunday kind of weekend. So the week before Easter, we had that cold freeze. I would say freeze. I think we did have at least 32 degrees. And so we've seen a lot of issues since. I'm not saying by any means that it's a bad year for gardening. It's not. But it is going to be a challenge because we've had such a strange beginning here into the gardening 2021 calendar that we're going to see some issues. And already people are bringing me samples of uh, plant problems, leaves and stems, even roots. Uh, people are bringing me pictures at Lanier Nursery and Gardens where you can find me throughout the week in Flowery Branch, Georgia. We've got a plant diagnostic center there. We're working hard to help people solve their plant issue problems. 
I don't know, issue problems. They're definitely problematic issues. And we're trying to help folks because this year has been the year for that. And so you're going to see as we go into summer, it's going to get hotter. It's probably going to get drier. Um, the plants are going to be struggling uh, just from the weather. But then if we have disease or insect problems, then they may struggle even further. And so today I thought we'd expand upon that uh a problem we talked about last week, of course, we talked about disease in tomatoes, but I thought that I would give you a few uh, quick discussions on disease management, managing diseases, controlling diseases in your landscape, preventing them even. I'll give you some tips there. Then we'll move into insect control, bug control, right? Uh, what can we do to um, help not just prevent, but also control and manage and, and breaking the life cycle of the insects that are problematic in your area. And then lastly, and hopefully we'll have time, uh, but we're going to talk about repelling deer. Now, of course, we don't necessarily eliminate deer unless you're in an area where hunting and you got your licensing, and whatever you have to do. I'm not a hunter, so I don't know. But of course, we don't necessarily eliminate deer like we eliminate insects, but there are special, unique ways that we can approach working uh, with deer in the landscape. And <laughs> I say working with um, in particular because I've sort of just under, I just embrace the fact that we got to work with them. You know, it's like a, uh, it's like a roommate. Deer are like a roommate. You got to live with them, even though they may be a pest, even though they may leave their dishes on the coffee table, even though they may leave their dirty laundry on the bathroom floor. They are a pest, but we've got to live with them because we have been doing so much developing and new residences, new businesses, new communities being built that the spaces they used to reside in we now reside in. So we're sort of coming into their backyard rather than coming into ours. So we just got to learn to work with deer. But I'm going to give you some tips and um, ideas on repelling deer. So th today's episode, of course, is, today's show is going to be all about, all about trying to manage pests in the landscape. The one thing we probably won't have time for is weeds, uh, but we'll save that for another day. Um, but before we get into that particular story, uh, train of thought. Uh, something very similar sort of uh, came to my mind this, this past week or so, and it has to do with landscapers. Now, you know, you may have listened to the show before, and it's been a while since I've gone on a gardening rant, or we'll call this, well, we'll call this one the landscaper tirade. It's been a long time. I'm not an angry person. I don't think so. Not usually. I don't know. You have to ask my wife about that, but I'm not really an angry person. But there are things that get under my skin, especially things that have to deal with the industry that I've made my life out of. Of course, that's horticulture, gardening, landscaping, etc., whatever. So, in the landscaper world, and I'm saying these things to protect you, to help you, because you may not realize you know, you need some work done in your landscape. You need your lawn mown. You need some plants uh, planted, whatever. You need some mulch laid down. Well, in this industry, in this business, there's no real licensing of landscapers per se, especially in our state. So, you know, where if you go to a doctor, he's got to have his degree. He's got to have the certification. But with landscaping, it's very loose. So, really, 
All you need in order to be a landscaper is a truck and a trailer and probably a mower. You've got a truck, you've got a trailer, you got a mower, and boom, automatically, just like magic, uh, out of the, pulling a rabbit out of the magic hat, you're a landscaper. But let me tell you, folks, that, you know, for those of us who went uh, a bit further and we went on to study and make this our career, make this our life, as crazy as it may be to want to do this for a living, <laughs> you know, Coming from that perspective, there are things that we should and should not be doing. There is information, there is research to look at uh, to make us better gardeners, better growers, better landscapers. And many of these kind of mow and blow guys, they're not doing that. And something came up not too long ago that sort of got my emotions stirring again. And that's where a client came to me and said there's this disease in our neighborhood. Um, it started here or started over there, and it's moving to all of our, you know, uh, sites. And we've never seen it before. We've never had this particular problem before. And basically want to know what happened, what, what do we do, how does, the, how does this happen, how does this disease just start taking over? And with talking with the client, I sort of found out that they all used a particular landscaper, that goes from house to house, and not just that neighborhood, but other neighborhoods. And so this particular landscaper um, is not necessarily, I don't know, reputable. I, I don't know how you want to go about it. Again, you don't have to have a license or certification to be a landscaper. I think it's helpful to want to study and improve your craft, if you will. But this particular landscaper is mowing blow guy. He keeps going. He, he goes here. He goes there. He goes everywhere. And so through sort of a process of elimination and just logic, we sort of deduce that it's very possible that this landscaper brought the disease into this community, probably on his mower. So here's something that I want you to be aware of, especially if you employ people uh, who are uh, coming to your house, coming to your place uh, to do work for you, and they also service other folks' house or other folks' residence. So when you move a piece of equipment like a mower or a weed eater or pruning shears or loppers or a saw or whatever uh, tool you're using at one site, it must be well cleaned and sanitized before going to the next person's house. This is just kind of basic. This is something that we should be doing. It is a big way to help prevent diseases, to prevent weeds, to prevent insects from one site to another. Because those mowers or those pruning shears or the loppers or whatever, those could either carry weed seed on them, definitely a mower, big time, and they could also carry diseases or eggs of insects or insects themselves. And so there are general practices that we should all be employing. But more importantly, um, if you are going as a landscaper from one person's house or one community to another, you may be transferring major potential issues that people uh, may exhibit. Sort of like the mosquito. 
Now, we don't have to worry so much about the mosquito here. Yes, we do. You remember that Zika? Remember Zika, right? And of course, malaria. Malaria is not big of an issue up here, uh, but malaria is spread by an insect, right? So the mosquito is moving that disease from one person to another, and every time they feed on a person, they inject that malaria disease or the Zika virus or whatever it is they're carrying. Well, think of it this way. The mosquito is your landscaper's lawnmower. Your landscaper's lawnmower is moving potential disease problems, potential weed problems, potential insect problems from somebody else's lawn to yours. Now, it's the same concept of why we don't use the same needles in hospitals. No, every needle is disposed of. If you have an operation, they use clean instruments. They use a clean scalpel. It's been sanitized. It's been sterilized. It's clean. If we aren't clean about our landscaping procedures, then we're going to be increasing the potential problems of disease, insects, uh, fungus, bacteria, weeds, whatever. Another anecdote, uh, another client came in not too long ago. It was about the same time as the other and says, I've got this major weed problem that I've never seen before, but I know I know that that weed came in on my landscaper's mower. I just know it did because it's in this one spot that he cuts. It's not anywhere else, but it's becoming a problem. And so that's another example of all it takes, folks, is to find a landscaper who is doing the right things. Now, sometimes that's difficult because you may not know if they're doing the right things or not. But ask them. If you go into business to contract with someone to do some labor for you, to do some work for you, then all you've got to do is start asking them questions. And one of those questions, this is, this is me giving you information to help protect you if you do employ landscapers, is to ask them, do you clean your tools, your instruments, your equipment in between every job? And you know, unfortunately, I'm afraid you're going to find a lot of no's to that end, uh, a lot of no's to answer that question because a lot of landscapers are not doing that. And if we're not doing that, we can have major issues. Let me give you one more example, then we got to go to a break. But roses, there's a terrible disease called rose rosette disease, and it could very well spread by the bad practices of bad landscapers. All they've got to do is take a cutting from one person, prune one guy's shrub, then come to your house and start pruning yours with those dirty, disease-ridden shears, and your rose has a life sentence to die. So after this quick break, we are going to talk about preventing these problems in your own landscape. Hang on tight. Hey gang, it's Nathan. Thanks so much for listening to the New Southern Garden Podcast. Of course, I love providing you with horticultural information to get you growing and growing well. But sometimes you need more than just information. You need plants. So I'd love for you to join me at Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, where you can find me throughout the week. But you can find more than just me, of course. <laughs> at Lanier Nursery and Gardens, you can browse through our wide selection of ornamental trees, glorious shrubs, and colorful perennials and annuals. And I want to thank all our listeners who have already made the trek to Lanier Nursery. It's been a pleasure to meet you and hear your gardening stories. We've got a wonderful crew of folks who are just itching to help you grow your best garden ever. So check out LanierNurseryGardens.com for more information and be sure to like us on Facebook and Instagram. Now let's get growing together.
Well, gang, you know, the, the closer and closer we get to summer, here we are in the month of June, and we just got about 15 days or so before we get into true summer. But the temperatures, the weather, oh boy, we know it's here. And with that temperature, with the kind of weather we have over summer, and the heat, boy, that just makes pest problems go crazy makes the pest problems run wild and rampant throughout your landscape. So on today's program here on New Southern Garden, we are talking all about disease control, insect control, and hopefully we'll have time for repelling deer, deer control. So I've picked probably three of the biggest things that you're going to have a problem with. I don't know. We probably need to talk about weeds at some point. But I don't think we'll have time for all that. So disease management is up first. Diseases. Diseases. Of course, humans, we get diseases. You know, sometimes we have bacterial infections. Rarely do we have fungal infections, but it is possible. Um, but in, plant, in the plant world, the majority of diseases are going to be fungal infections, fungal problems. But there's plenty of bacteria to go around, and plants do suffer from bacterial infections as well. And, you know, we're not going to be talking about specific diseases per se or how to treat them because there are plenty there are many and if you have a potential disease problem feel free to send it to us at newsoutherngarden.com or send us some pictures on facebook and instagram and we will address that specifically but i want to give you some general tips some general guidelines to use in order to prevent and discourage these diseases in your garden depending on the weather conditions whether it's hot and dry whether it's wet and hot whether it's dry and cold or whether it's wet and cold, <laughs> there are a variety of um, weather conditions we see and experience in the South, and they can all promote or discourage certain types of fungus and bacteria. But in general, there are some things you'll want to do. And if you're just joining us, then you missed out on my tirade against landscapers who are becoming a major source for disease problems because they are going around the community. They're going from one residence to another and they're not sanitizing or sterilizing their equipment or their shears or their tools, whatever they're using, and they're moving these diseases. It's very easy to do that. And they are becoming, these bad landscapers are becoming a problem for disease uh, and weeds and insects in, in our area. So, um, but what can you do? What are some things that you can do in order to prevent and discourage your place becoming a disease-ridden nightmare? Well, the first thing is you've got to be able to identify the fact that you have a disease. Now, some plant diseases are not due to fungus, not due to bacteria, they may be due to a problem in the soil, uh, maybe, or, or nutritional needs. So nutrient deficiencies. Nutrient deficiencies are not infectious. They're just that. They're a deficiency. They're not an infectious disease. And so that can be mitigated and managed in certain ways. But to make sure, if you're seeing spots, if you're seeing lesions, if you're seeing um, 
let's see, what's some other, some yellowing as well as some spots and lesions, then that's a good sign that you probably do have some kind of biological disease, fungal or bacteria going on, maybe viral. We haven't talked much about virus and also nematodes, even though they're a creature, they're usually grouped uh, with diseases. But once you've identified the fact you've got it, maybe you can identify what it is specifically that is ailing your plant. But we need to remove the, we got to break the life cycle. So it's always a good idea to remove any diseased material, whether it's on a tree or whether it's on a shrub or whether it's on a perennial plant or, or a tomato plant or some kind of vegetable. It is always appropriate to remove diseased material. Removing diseased material. It's uh, on the human body. We can't just cut off a finger to remove the disease. Sometimes we have to do that. We try to not remove a finger because it's very important and they don't grow back. But remember, on a plant, if you have a diseased branch, you can remove it to get the disease out of the plant system and then allow it to regrow new branches. There's nothing wrong with that. Completely acceptable. So when we're removing material from a plant let's say it's um, a tree a, a, a small tree a young tree and there's obviously a branch that is you know leaves on the tips have spots and lesions and yellowing uh, but leaves in towards the center of the branch towards the trunk look generally okay they look fine so what we can do is we can find along the branch where that symptom stops and then go into the branch by at least six inches and make your cut there. Now, that's what I call a margin. Adding six inches to where you're going to make a cut on a branch, on a diseased branch, is important. It's sort of like uh, what I've learned with my uh, mother's um, uh, brain cancer uh, battle she's having, is that when you're trying to remove a cancer from the human body, you're trying to also remove margin the edge around, as much margin as you can to try and eradicate any tiny cells that may be growing beyond the tumor itself. That's the margin. Well, in plants, we can sort of do the same thing. We need to. We need to remove the definitely diseased and infected wood, but also some wood that is not diseased. Because if we don't get it all out, then it may just continue to push towards the center of the plant. So always think about at least, if you can, a six-inch margin in addition to any obviously diseased material. Because again, bacteria and fungus, they're tiny microscopic organisms, and they're going to be working on your plant on the cellular level. So some of those tiny little threads of fungus, the mycelia there, may be creeping into good wood that doesn't look symptomatic yet. So trying to get out Definitely diseased wood, but also wood that is not diseased is going to help. Now, once you've done the removing of diseased material, making sure that every cut you make, you're sanitizing and sterilizing your shears, I should say, sterilizing your shears, um, then you can start to begin using fungus, a f a fungicidal treatments or bacterial treatments. Now, I will say that the fungicides generally work best as a preventative. In other words, the bacteria or the fungus touches the fungicide before it gets to the plant. Because once the, the fungus has gotten into the plant, 
it's going to be hard. You're not going to undo anything. You're only going to slow down or maybe prevent more damage, but you're not going to undo it. So people ask me, well, is this going to green up? Is this going to turn? No, it's not. It's infected. It's diseased. The fungicide is not going to work on what's already happening, but it will slow down and prevent further movement of the fungus. So making sure that you're using fungus fungicides preventatively is very important. And I would say it's definitely important on plants that you know have had specific issues in the past. So if your cherry tree, your ornamental cherry tree had disease last year, be sure that you start using a fungicide the next spring or next late winter to prevent any further damage. Now, there's two words we need to talk about real quickly, and that is sanitization and sterilization. Sanitization is important in the landscape because what it implies is that we're going to remove any diseased material, whether it's on the plant or whether it's on the ground. So if your plant drops its leaves and they were diseased, you've got to pick them up. You've got to get rid of them. Now, the best way to get rid of them is probably to burn them. If you burn these diseased plant products, these leaves or branches uh, or roots even, then that disease is going to be heat treated in the flames and it is gone. It's not going to be a problem. But if you leave uh, leaf material or branch material on the ground over winter, you are creating um, a situation where that disease can flourish and splash back up onto your plant the next year. So removing any mulch underneath may be important. You can uh, take that material, not burn it, and send it off in a bag somewhere, but I would say just burn it if you can. But when we get back, we've talked about sanitization. We need to talk about sterilization and how it will help you be disease-free. Hang on tight, gang. Be right back. Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is on the air. Your host, Nathan Wilson, with Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, is excited about providing information every gardener and non-gardener, homeowner, and apartment dweller can use. From vegetables to containers and compost to pruning shears, Nathan Wilson's New Southern Garden Show is here for you. Now here's Nathan. Well, gang, I I really hope that you have not been seeing disease problems in your landscape. But if you have, well, you've tuned in at the right time because we are talking about diseases in plants and how to mitigate them and keeping them disease-free. Now, we are actually wrapping up the discussion on diseases, and we were talking before the break about the difference between two words, sanitization and sterilization. In the landscape, we need to sanitize uh, trees or planting areas that have had disease. And all that means is pretty simple, pretty basic, is any leaf material or stem material or root material that was diseased this year, we remove it and we burn it. And by the end of the year, we can even remove any mulch that leaves may have fallen onto. It is a good idea to essentially clean up diseased areas. It's like cleaning up a mess on the kitchen floor. 
we're going to scoop the mess up, and then we're going to clean it. And so that sort of leads us into sterilization. Now, sterilization refers to keeping your pruning tools, maybe even your shovels, sterilized, keeping them clean. We want to sterilize our pruning shears in between pruning cuts, especially pruning cuts made between different plants. So the idea is you're sterilizing your pruning shears, maybe with uh, alcohol. What I will do is I will just have my pruning shears and in one hand and in the other hand have a spray bottle of alcohol. Now I'm talking about uh, rubbing alcohol is sufficient. And I will mist with that spray bottle my pruning shears in between pruning cuts or definitely in between pruning different plants. You can also use bleach and water. Just dilute your bleach about one part bleach to ten parts water and that should be sufficient to sterilize your pruning shears. But the concept is we do not want to move potential diseases around the garden, around the landscape. And so, that will keep your plants happier and healthier, and you're not... Oh, let me refer to it this way. I, I guess I've already mentioned it before, but it's like in, in the hospitals. Anytime a nurse goes from one room to another, she's sterilizing her hands. Or if they use a needle to draw blood or something, they use a fresh needle. We never, never reuse a different reuse a needle on, on different people that is just just bonkers and so the same thing here i don't think i've ever said the word bonkers on the air before that's interesting i don't ever use that word but it's just crazy it's just crazy to think that we would do the same with plants and essentially an unclean pruning shear is a dirty needle and you're sticking or cutting one plant who may be diseased with a plant that's not diseased and boom you've just infected him so Sanitization and sterilization are very important aspects. Making sure you are monitoring your planting area, monitoring the plants that you are growing, looking to see if there are potential problems, that is the best thing you can do. And transitioning into disease, transitioning from disease management into insect control or insect management, I would say the same thing. It's very important that we're always looking, always looking. And so the first step into controlling insects is very much like controlling diseases. We need to scout for the insects. We need to look under leaves, look along branches, look down at the base of the plant to see if there's any crawlers right at the trunk of the tree, looking for the, the insects and identifying the problem. Identifying the problem, knowing what kind of insect you have is going to be very vital and very important, just as important as it was with knowing what kind of specific disease you have um, if you do have some kind of disease. Now, the reason that I say making sure you identify the problem is because without knowing what kind of insect you have, you may not be able to determine what route to take as far as controlling it. And also, knowing what kind of insect you have lets you know if it's something disastrous or if that insect is just passing through, it'll chew a little bit, it'll suck a little juice out of the leaves, and then it'll move on, and it may not be a problem. Because everything, uh, when we talk about insects or any kind of pests, we have this idea of a threshold of um, 
control. So in in other words, how much damage or threshold of damage, I should say, how much damage can you handle or can your plant handle before you have to increase your motive of attack? Because I will tell you, we never, even into even in today's modern research where we're, you know, got great chemistries that are safe to some degree, if used appropriately, uh, chemistries that are being pushed in big agriculture, whatnot, we never want to jump to the nuclear option when it comes to insects or disease. We want to make sure that by scouting and identifying how bad the problem is, by determining how much damage they're actually doing, we're always slowly increasing our motive of attack, and we're going to start very simple. And so that very first motive of attack, regardless of what insect you may have, that first motive may be something like physical removal of the insect. If you are scouting, okay, folks, if you are scouting, if you are looking for bugs on your plants, then anytime you find one, you can squish it. You can just squish the juice out of it, put it out of its terrible insect misery. Now, I know that sounds pretty disastrous, but essentially that's what you can do. You can squish it. Or if you see a small grouping of insects, or maybe I should say you can't say there's more insects than you can squish, you may turn on the hose. And without damaging the plant, without beating it to death, push the hose pressure high enough, a water hose, watering hose, where you can give a good stream to blast those insects off of the plant. It's quite effective, actually. And if you catch it while there's not as many insects, then it may be very, uh, very effective. Now, another thing about physical removal that some people question me about is, I get it often, actually, is should I remove the leaf that the aphid is on? Or say you find a worm. Do I need to remove the leaf? Well, think about this. If you have an aphid, that aphid is sucking juices out of the leaf. But it's, unless the infestation is very heavy, you may not lose the entire leaf. But the moment that you cut the leaf off, you lose the entire leaf. And then you became bigger of a pest than the little aphid who was just sucking some juices out. Does that make sense? So in other words, leave the leaves, but remove the insect problem. But many times, there are too many bugs, too heavy of an infestation to just use physical removal. Even though it can be very effective, it's kind of messy, and you may feel a little sad about squishing the life out of your uh, little insects there, um, but just know that they won't be damaging your plant anymore. Then you may move into insecticides. And when we go into insecticides, we've got to think of a few things. First of all, there's two main groups we have organic insecticides, which are naturally occurring materials or naturally occurring chemicals that uh, insects either don't like, they may smother them, or they may actually infect them with disease itself, which is good, right? So um, we'll, we'll talk some details about that later. But then, of course, we've got chemical insecticides, and sometimes... Chemical insecticides are not naturally occurring. Many of them are based off of naturally occurring elements, but they are made in laboratories, factories, whatnot. And so some folks are more scared of the chemicals for good reasons. But this is where the 
I always say when I'm talking about what options you can use, this is where you have to make the decision. Either are you going to just use organics or are you ever going to allow some more chemicals and man-made things into your garden? That's up to you. That's an ethical question that I'll let you uh, uh, determine. But I'm going to present to you options on both ends so that you can make well-educated decisions. So with the organics, one of the first things we can start with, and if you're thinking about increasing your mode of attack, you know, physical removal and squishing uh, or picking them off is not as effective, then you may go with something as simple as insecticidal soap or horticultural oils. Now, both of these things are generally, uh, you can find organic versions. Uh, We do have some horticultural oil at the nursery, which, of course, is basically mineral oils. And so no problem there. Get on your skin. It's not a problem. Uh, Nothing to worry about. But those work as suffocating these insects. They work very well on small-bodied, or I should say soft-bodied insects. um, And they can work on some harder-bodied insect as well because they're going to coat them in soap or coat their bodies in oil. So you've got to spray the insect directly for it to work well and it will smother them. Then you may move into something like pyrethrin or spinosad, which pyrethrin is definitely something that comes out of a plant, uh, the mum plant. Particular mums produce this naturally occurring chemistry that insects can't handle, and it's like poison to them. And then spinosad is a bacteria that gets into the bodies of insects, and it gives them a tummy ache, and eventually they die from that infection. Now, The great thing about some organics is that uh, there is one in particular called Bt, or Bacillus thuringiensis. Now, Bt is something that um, uh, is another bacteria, but it it, it, it only affects worms or caterpillars. Okay, so many of the problematic bugs you may find in your vegetable garden in particular are worms, like tomato hornworm. Uh, and some other things, maybe some cabbage loopers and something like that. But if you get this BT, you're only going to be killing worms. So it's very selective. Instead of potentially affecting other uh, pollinator-type insects, good insects, this one will strictly uh, kill the ones that you know you've got that are a problem. Then you may move into chemicals, more chemistry-based things, right? So chemicals, of course... um, There's plenty of varieties, and there's old-fashioned ones, some that have been outlawed, (laughs) and some that are brand new. Uh, There's one in particular called permethrin, which I'll mention, uh, is based off of the pyrethrin, which is naturally occurring. But permethrin is also used as um, dips or powders on dogs, cats, uh, horses for fleas, ticks, and other problems they may other insects that may cause them irritation Uh, but also they use permethrin in mosquito repellents for humans it's kind of expensive but it's not just a repellent it will actually kill the mosquito and so extremely safe you can see it can be applied on your on your arms and legs to help you uh, keep the bugs away Uh, if you're in the jungles that's where I used it was in Venezuela but anyhow so you've got to kind of know but let me just break down chemical uh, insecticides into two groups first of all you've got foliar sprays uh, things that you may spray onto the foliage or things that you may sprinkle onto the ground and they're going to work directly uh, by the insect taking that in but then there's also systemic 
insecticides. And systemic insecticides are going to go into the plant and the insect will suck the juices out or eat a leaf and they will get that chemical into them that way. So there are several different options and of course we don't really have the time to detail them but I do want to just make it known that you can go either way. And regardless, what we're trying to do here with insect control is break the life cycle. Either break it when it's an infant or an egg or a larvae or break the life cycle as an adult. And if you do that by scouting, identifying your problem, using physical removal, and maybe using certain applications, you'll have good success. All right, gang, hang on tight. We're going to talk about deer when we get back. Greenness unfolded for the world. Hey gang, do you sometimes feel like you are riding a lonely trail while gardening, all alone with no one to join in the fun? Well, join the new Southern Garden community today and find peace of mind by sharing your experiences, whether they be poor ones or successful ones. New Southern Garden is on Facebook and Instagram, so I'd love for you to friend, follow, like, share whatever it is we're doing these days. Also, you can check out our website at NewSouthernGarden.com where you can not only find every episode of the show ever, but you can also send us a question via our Contact Us page. It's never fun gardening alone. So get social with the New Southern Garden family and let's grow well. So, gang, we have been talking about alleviating summer pests in your garden. <laughs> we began our discussion today on alleviating your garden from probably the worst pest out there, bad landscapers. <laughs> I can't resist. We talked about how they, bad landscapers, don't know who don't know what they're doing and understand how diseases can spread from one site to another. They're promoting that. Definitely a problem. We've also talked about diseases, uh, you know, fungus and bacteria and how to prevent and alleviate some of those issues. And, and we just wrapped up talking about insect control, controlling insects in your landscape. And I've just been giving you some tips and ideas on how to do that uh, with all these things. It, it, it's very important that whether it's a disease or insect that you know what it is. And so I'm speaking in general terms today, but I do want to remind you that if you identify your problem, then you will have a better uh, success at trying to find something that is going to get it out of your landscape. So knowing what you have, and you can do that, of course, uh, we'll be glad to help you if you want to send us pictures and images, uh, whether it's at NewSouthernGarden.com, or you can send things on our Facebook and Instagram, but also you've got, uh, you know, county agent at your disposal. Uh, that's a cooperation between your land grant college here in the United here here in Georgia. Uh, that's the University of Georgia, and they're cooperating with your county uh, to get information to you. So feel free to contact them if you've got a problem. But going forward into summer and then into fall and winter, you will probably have an issue with deer. If you've got deer now, you will probably have them later. If you've never had them then you uh, are lucky, uh, but they are 
moving around the southeast at extremely fast speeds uh, because we're gro- we're living where they used to live. We're living in their backyards. So we have talked about deer on New Southern Garden to some extent in the past. I believe we had a two-part episode at least. And you can check out for more details uh, that episode probably over year and a half ago now it may be two years ago but check that out at newsoutherngarden.com or on any of the podcasting apps but i am going to give you sort of a summary and like a three bullet point discussion on repelling deer in the landscape of course with deer we don't normally eradicate them there are certain laws against hunting and if you're having hoa if you're in the city you know you've got to be careful there i'm not a hunter i don't get into that um but we have found some effective ways to help uh, repel deer, and uh, I'm going to talk about that. So deer, of course, are a pest. They're a 200, could be up to a 200, 250-pound pest. So they're big ones, and they are a lot like teenagers in the fact that if they're hungry enough, they'll eat anything. So some of the things that you see them eating, um, I don't know, it's getting, it's getting bizarre. Some things that we never thought they would eat, they're eating. And that's the first point about uh, people always ask about, I need to plant something the deer don't like, right? And I say, well, good luck, because there are plenty of things that used to be deer resistant that no longer are. But plant selection is important. And not just selecting the plants, but where do you place them? If you have heavy deer traffic in a certain area, don't plant hostas, don't plant hydrangeas. They love those. You may do gardenias or you may do some kind of false cypress or cedars or cypresses or something like that. Things that they generally don't like. If it's in the shade, maybe hellebores. They don't like hellebores. If it's in the sun, maybe peonies. They don't like peonies. And so with all that being said, choosing the right plants is important, but also choosing where you place these plants because they may eat something they normally wouldn't if it's in a location where they are walking, where they are moving. So other than, uh, you know, thinking about the plants you're going to use and not use and not place them and where to place them, the second point about keeping deer away is physical barriers. Physical barriers, sometimes we just say fences, are important. But it's more than just fences. Because, again, fences may not be an option. They can get very pricey, get very expensive. So you may go with a cheaper alternative like chicken wire or netting. But in many cases, those things aren't too aesthetic. They don't look too good. They're cheap, but they just don't look pretty. So uh, something else that has been in research before is fishing line. Fishing line, just simple, cheap roll of fishing line. You create a web, just throw it out over your plants. It's going to be temporary but it will give you some protection for a while, but throwing it out over your plants, creating this web of confusion. When the deer gets their nose in that fishing line, they don't, they can't see it. They don't know what it is. And they generally leave that plant alone. Sort of the same concept of using hair to some degree, but sometimes people use hair in weird ways and I don't get it. But regardless, physical barriers, they're very effective, but at the same rate, they may not necessarily uh, be budgetable, they may not be very cheap, and they may not look very good. So you may want to use them sparingly. But then one of the last things uh, that you may consider using in your deer repelling system is repellents. Now, repellents are essentially those products 
that number one, smell funny, or number two, taste funny. And that's how these products work with deer. They are uh, agitating the deer's sense of taste or agitating the deer's sense of smell. Because even though it seems like deer may, yes, eat anything, they are creatures of habit. They are very much creatures of habit, habit, and they are going to go after things they know rather than things they've never tried. I'm not saying things they've never tried before, uh, but if there's an unusual smell, they won't eat it. If it tastes funny, not very palatable, they won't eat it. And so repellents can are usually either a granule or a liquid that is sprayed on. So the granule is sprinkled around plants and the uh, liquids are or concentrates are diluted in water and sprayed onto the foliage. Now, of course, these products are not going to harm your plant if they're from a reputable source. I don't know, mixing some recipe up off the internet may be questionable, not sure, but test it first. Um, but otherwise, you know, people do come to me and they say, yeah, but we get a rain and we got to reapply it. Well, you're exactly right. We have to do a little bit of cultivation in the garden, heaven forbid. But we may have to reapply those pretty frequently. Now, some of these sprays or granules have been marketed and they claim they last longer. But let me tell you about something that is revolutionary and completely, uh, I think, probably the forward way of thinking. And that is the systemic in, uh, the systemic deer repellent. We just brought it into Lanier Nursery and Gardens. It's called Repel-X. And Repel-X is a product that's been created out of the University of Minnesota. And usually, those products that come out of the universities are uh, very good products. But the uh, Repel-X is a granule that is sprinkled onto the soil around your plant. You scratch it in the soil a little bit, get it close to the roots. The plant's roots take it up, and every part, the roots, the shoots, the leaves... The stems, they are all protected by this Repel-X. Now, it's revolutionary, folks. It's going to change the way you garden. That is for sure. And more importantly, it's going to keep not just deer, but chipmunks away or voles and moles away. Particularly anything trying to eat the roots, it will stay away. So, these are the ways. Choose the right plants. Put them in the right place. Use a physical barrier. Use some repellents. And that is a summary of keeping deer out of your landscape. Well, folks, let's get into summer and get growing and growing well. This is Nathan Wilson hoping you stay well and grow well. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for joining us for this edition of Nathan Wilson's New Southern Garden Show. If you have a comment about today's program, you can reach out to Nathan by sending an email to grow at LanierNurseryGardens.com. Also get more information at NewSouthernGarden.com. Join us next Saturday on Local News Radio 93.9 FM and AM 1350 for Nathan Wilson's New Southern Garden Show. 